0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of One Vision. Joining us today is Shilpa Bangera, Chief Revenue Officer at Finestra and previously Global Head of Enterprise Growth at Uber, as well as someone with about two decades of experience in financial services, including Fiserv, London Stock Exchange Group, Bloomberg, JPM and Citi. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Tio. I, I thanks thanks so much for having me
1: on the show and I'm it's really, truly an honor uh to be here. So I really do
0: appreciate it. And I need to thank our mutual friend, Christophe, for connecting us. Um, he knows our passion of trying to feature different voices on, on the show. So thank you, my friend. Um, before we start, can you tell us a little bit about your journey and also what you're doing at Finestra? It's quite an interesting path because I see that you had a lot of years in financial services and then you went to Uber which is not entirely different. There are some aspects to it that are very, very interesting, connected. And then you came back to financial services.
1: Yes. Interesting. Uh, interesting indeed. You know, I think you can probably resonate with this as much as I do as a parent. Now I tend to read a lot of children books and actually equally enjoy watching kid movies. All of this to say, um, you know, there is an infamous, so is, Dr. Suez says that your brains in your head, your feet in your shoes, you can steer yourself in any direction you choose. The reason I say that is that's how I summarize my career and how I've pivoted in areas where I felt compelled to build, add value, and drive a purpose. So I did start my career in banking, went on to financial services, Fintech, dived into pure tech and now back into fintech, you know so it just shows that <clears throat> you can take a person. Um, to tech, but you can't take the finance out of them. So I'm here back uh, at Finastra. And in all of those experiences that I've had, what really drove me uh, was to pursue the opportunity to build from an inception stages, uh, transform an existing business, um, build future leaders, and to ultimately drive growth. So here today, I'm at Finastra. I've been here for about uh, four, a little over four months. And uh, the purpose here at Finastra is we really are driving or enabling global economic opportunity for all. And that is a purpose that I am very well aligned with. And in my current role as a chief revenue officer here uh, for the platform business at Finastra, I'm driving that innovation to not just Finastra, but our clients and our partners. Why I decided to move to Finastra would be one of the reasons is because I really saw the opportunity um, in the power of platform, uh, which is unlike any other in financial services. Um, an opportunity to build a platform business that can harness this flywheel of innovation for Finastra and equally for financial services. Uh, We live and breathe here at Finastra where we say that the the future of finance is open and it's it's no joke because every person here at Finastra is working towards that vision. So I really get an opportunity to build that business uh, with them. And uh, so, yeah, so that talks talks a little bit of my pivot from finance to tech and back into finance.
0: I think a lot of that resonates with me because I do have two kids and I chuckled a little bit when you talk about <laughs> kids' books and kids' movies because, gosh, um, yes, that has been quite a journey <laughs> and uh, not to mention re-listening and listening to some of the songs that I just wish I could get out of my head. Um, but that being said, I I love that pivot and coming back. I think there is a lot we can learn between industries, the line is not as concrete as some would like it to be. I, I think there's blur and it's blurring more. And, and there are things that we can leverage each other for, especially um, some of the models I've seen in Asia in the last few years, for example, you talk about the power of platform, right? And one of, one of my favorite examples when we talk about platform and, and better finance models are the super apps in Asia, right? Like the grab and the gojack and the ants, they have been really, really interesting in the way that they grow and the way they uh, provide services to different segments of the population. And I've always thought one day, perhaps one day, we might actually see that in the West, although I think um, the wonderful friends in the US and Europe might think of super up a little bit differently i am curious though to hear what your thoughts are since that's something that you guys live and breathe with um with regards to some of the newer models that's happening in the west
1: yeah sure i think first of all i would i know there's a there's a very distinction i wanted to make is i think every company today no matter what they do you know is is a fintech company right it doesn't matter whether you're a bank you are a startup um, you know, it could, it could be retailer, telco, car manufacturer. I think they're all looking and preparing to launch embedded financial services, you know, or embedded financials, embedded services to their customers. And yes, I think, I think, um, you know, there are some, some regions that are far more agile uh, towards recepting, you know, receiving that right, which you see in um, which you, you talk specifically about APAC, which is where we do necessarily see the growth of the next Growth region, as we see, would be in Latin America, but equally in in the, uh, the Middle East and Africa region. So, there is that appetite to digitize fairly quickly because there is limited legacy. So the, there is less friction at times there, and and then it's need of an hour. Need of an hour. Now coming back to the you know, fintech company, I mean years ago, if you look at Uber as a classic example, right? Cabbies would ask for cash in hand. And now, ride hailing uh, apps might just take payment seamlessly in the background. I mean, it's absolutely that frictionless. In fact, once I walked out of the cab without even paying, not realizing it wasn't an Uber, you know, I didn't even make, you know, I did make the payment after, but the level of user experience is in habit forming and And it's, and it's really hard to adopt to the old way. So it's, it's really about how do we really collaborate on the right use case? How do we bring people together on this journey, whether it be a platform, whether it be a, a, um, whether it be a super app? Because at the end of the day, you are solving for a customer need. You're either enhancing it or you are, you know, you're, you're bringing the customer on that journey with you. So as far as um, new models, I know, Tia, you asked me about um, some of the new models that I see. I think there's there are a few, right? I, but I, I wouldn't go into both. But the two of two two of them, um, you know, they they come to my mind. Is one is the plug and play of APIs, which which you know we we you see that happening in financial services. But but as the fintech industry has matured, right, and the drive to innovate has um, obviously accelerated because of that. Today, companies can pick the services from different providers, and they would like to combine and offer that to their own customers, right? Which you see a lot in APAC, and you'll can you'll start to see that here in the US. I mean, you see the company called Block, right? That that's what they're doing. So, what that allows you to do is you're really dropping barriers to entry, um, you know, for for companies using embedded finance to meet those customer needs. Uh, specifically, the uh, the these these thing these. Uh, these trends particularly that you see currently are mostly in retail logistics and and perhaps e-commerce and entertainment um and then the second one i would say rising b2b models right so most of the times i mean i come from uber which is very much a b2c model but if you look at financial services fintech in itself um, especially if you're looking at a financial software company, it's more of a B2B model. And we're seeing a rise in that, right, in terms of another model. I mean, they're, 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 the B2B applications are proving invaluable to companies for, I mean, to give you an example, think of Shopify. Again, you know, something here um, in the North America, right? If, it, if, if For instance, it was first and foremost a platform for online stores, but today it provides merchants, with embedded banking solutions, you know that could allow them to manage money that they make from their customers with the platform. So, um, so as you see this rise in embedded finance, there are certain industries that have, I would say, have have taken on taken on a lead with it. But having said that, you sh- we will see that trend of embedded finance and the adoption more now. You'll see a lot of that happening in health, education, um, employment um, and even real estate. So, so that's, um, that's where I see where we are today and, uh, you know, where we are going.
0: It, it is fascinating, um, indeed to, to see the changes and I love what you just said. Um, every company or everyone is a FinTech company. And if we take a step back and think about it, it is very true, right? Um, we might not think of it that way. But going back a few years, though, um, I, I remember quite a while now, I always got asked, like, what do we think about FinTech? Is FinTech going to be eating bankers lunch? Is Amazon's going to, you know, completely uh, wipe out banks as we know it? Um, There was a lot of fear and chatter or perhaps uncertainty as to initially the roles of fintech and then the roles of big tech. Um, and now you're saying, you know, everyone is a fintech company. How do we think is going to play out in a few years? Because you see Apple positioning themselves in a certain way, and then you see Google and then backing off and now focusing a lot um, in the cloud services, different of the big tech companies as well as different of fintech. I, I wouldn't even call the likes of PayPal a startup, for example. What is going on with all of these different big players and what role do you think they will be playing? Yeah, sure. Yeah,
1: I think that's a very interesting question. Um, again, echoing that I am a firm believer that every company is a fintech, right? And and the reason I say this, I don't see any differentiation between um banking and and um and and fintech is because i think they're converging um they they're both becoming increasingly aware of the human element in business right so the end goal if you think about uh, whether you are ab b2b b2c whether you're an enterprise software company or you know you're in retail the end goal is to be customer centric and not product centric and i think we now live in in an era where um you know we used to call customers a king but right now everything that everyone's really looking to do is how do we drive that user experience to be so seamless that you it absolutely happens and without you even knowing about it, right? So I, I just gave you about my Uber experience, um, just just hailing a cab and just walking out of the door not realizing that I hadn't paid. So um, so in terms of you know so given that there is a focus and I said they're both converg- converging, I think customer value and engagement is is I would say the need of the an hour, and I think both of them both of these are focusing on the same goal. So I think you you would see because of that I think there is a rise in a couple a couple of areas right so we just spoke about embedded finance I, I won't really go into it but one thing I will add to it, the embedded finance is you'll see right um, the maturity of embedded finance in the SMB or SME sector is something that I, I see happening a bit more, right? How we empower the small business owners is very vital for our economy. So you, you, you've seen great strides taken by the likes of Walmart, even Goldman Sachs, for example, Amazon Block, you know, how they enable um, the growth in the SMB sector. In fact, it's about 26%. I, I think I read a stat, 26% of the SME market um, by twenty. 20- uh, 2025 will represent around 120 plus billion in value. I mean that's huge, right? So yes, you have embedded finance, but now they're trying to bring it downstream to see how now we could we could uh, we could uh, uh, drive value to the SMB sector. Um, and then a couple of others, right? So SaaS platform will be on the rise, right? You see that with Shopify. I gave an example of Shopify. Even Mind MindBody is another one that I could rise of open banking. So we are at the front front of that, right? So we we speak about, uh, you know, the future of finance being open. So we're not just talking about open banking. We truly are disrupting and shaping the foundation of financial services. So I think, yeah, so I think embedded finance in the SMB, the SaaS platform, um, rise of open banking... And last but not the least, uh, or rather I think one other thing after that, is just the rise in fintech for good and and sustainability, right? So as as you see, sustainable value creation and financial services has never been more important. You know, There's an increased interest in fintechs with ESG capabilities, um, including companies that are focused on climate change, be it circular economy or decarbonization, right? So that's another trend that I definitely see. And then um, to your first point, it's the fintech super app. Right. So it's the it's, uh, you know, digital transformation has led to a rise of these number of banking super apps now being available to customers. You know, for fintech is the rise of the apps mean trading in cryptocurrency um, um, or while managing several savings accounts um, into B2C. As I mentioned, you know, the WeChat or WhatsApp that's experimenting with banking features in a- in Asia or in South America. I think you brought it up, right? PayPal is looking for merging crypto shopping and uh, what is it? Um, I think payments in one spot. So, so yeah, there is that element of um, super app as well. And you won't see it um, happening in every every geography at the same time. But but you definitely will see parts and pieces in in some of the geographies that I see where you see higher adoption.
0: Yes of i actually thought that uber at some point i thought they were going to be the first one to break out a similar model as what we see in asia because it makes sense right like what you are saying, you would get out of the car you don't even have to think about paying for for the ride and you know you can use that you use that already to order food and delivery and all kinds of services it just makes sense that they could potentially be the aggregates for everything that we have not just on the consumer side, but also on the driver, uh, the the micro entrepreneur side. I think that could have been a very interesting model um, in the West. I'm not quite sure exactly what happened there.
1: Right. I think they do have the appetite. First and foremost, I think it's a very competitive landscape. Second of all, I think it's the adherence to the regulatory environment, right? Which which is very stringent. So yes, you might have the appetite to do something, but you, know, you need to still adhere to the norms of where your... Where where you're conducting business, like for example, Uber is no longer available in China. They've exited some countries. They don't have the eats business anymore in in India, right? So I think it has more to do with uh, market dominance and, and where uh, where they think they can dominate in. Or I mean, I don't think dominance is the right word, but also having equal play field, I would say, for for all the regional providers in that region as well. So you're right they they given their they, given their span of work that they do and 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 how visible they are they can do it but i think sometimes your constraints are are just the country that you operate in and adhering to the rules and regulations in that country that inhibits your growth but might uh, conversely might might work well for a similar similar i would say provider who is a Um, how do I say it, Um, is a domestic provider.
0: Yeah, it's really, I think of all the things I've seen the last few years, that is one of the most interesting trends is seeing different models popping up in different regions and how different region has different dominant player That are doing certain things is not as easy as well. I'm just going to pluck this and then drop it in a different region. And, like you say, um, regulatory concern, consumer appetite, and their preferences, and all of that. um, It just makes the space so much more fun to look at.
1: Yes, it does. You know, because I think if you look at it, every buying journey or every every buy the buying journey for any individual customer is different where where they operate in, right? So, and because of that, I think your expectations are 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 so different based on that. You and I can sit, you know sit here where we are, and you know we can we can order an item on, on prime. It might be here in two hours or it could probably be here within twenty four hours. But that isn't the case uh, right in 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 some regions. And in that case, uh, you know, you level set your expectations too. So, I think your your appetite to grow in in a region has to has to adapt very much so in what the client demands in that region and where and how much they can even even adopt to and
0: scale likewise. That reminds me of a story I read, oh, a couple of months ago now. There are some delivery platforms in Asia that are trying to compete based on how fast they can deliver something. So instead of, like you said, the two hour that we will get with Prime in here in the US, there are platforms that are saying, well, you know, you're going to get X in an hour or X in half an hour. It almost feels like from a consumer perspective, do I really need that ice cream in one hour or can I actually wait for a little bit? There, there has to be aligned somewhere. I know it has nothing to do with payment. Ice cream. Ice cream like like you know what who is it benefiting definitely not those poor drivers who are dashing across the city for no apparent reason um and and i think as consumers we got so used to we want this and then we want this now not just consumers i think humans in general we lost the art of actually savoring something and waiting for something we we just want instant gratification I know that with my kids um, when I told them in the old days when I was growing up I used to have to wait for that television show and it would come on just one hour every week at that exact same time at the exact same day of the week and if you miss it you miss it because there was no recording there was no you know playback there was no Bench watching on Netflix as we do now, and they looked at me like horrified. How did you live like that? Well, that's how we
1: always... Exactly, yes, <laughs> yes. We, we we live in a world of instant gratification and it has its pros and cons. And and sometimes uh, I think it's a question of what is a need and what is a want, right? So to your point, is there an absolute need to get something in an hour? Yeah, if it's medicine, yes, absolutely, right? I might, I might need it but uh, i mean could could a could a could my meal wait could uh you know something yeah, so it is really a question of uh where do we draw a line between a need and a want right and how far do we go to get that um and i think this could be a great debate and <laughs> it's only, yeah, so there's i'm sure there's somebody on the other other uh, other side of the coin having some very realistic um uh, stats and, and, and reasoning why that is the case.
0: That is very true. And I'll be the first one to raise my hand that all the times when I want like the next day delivery, things will always come to the house and they will end up sitting in the boxes until I have time to open them on the weekend. And, and it, it would get to the point where I am actually really glad some of the delivery services, they say, you know, do you want to group all of your things in one chat? And it saves, um, resources. It saves delivery. It saves all of the boxes that you end up throwing away. Anyway, I digress. Um, <laughs> speaking of um, instant gratification, here's an interesting question. For the life of me, I just don't understand it. If we look at, all of the things that fintechs have solved and the things that they have yet to solve, the first thing that always comes to mind is cross-border payment. I do a lot of work with clients from overseas and getting paid is still a pain in 2022 in the U S we still have checks that's besides the point, but When you want to move money cross-border, sometimes it's still very expensive and it takes four days, for example. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on why that is the case. You thought, you know, I would have thought that would be the first thing would have solved already.
1: Yes, I, you know, I, that is, so again, there is, this is my point. There is that inclination to solve for it, right? But you have to think about, there is this legacy way of working or conducting business with so many different stakeholders involved in it for, for so many years now, right? So to even drive transformation on that. Is going to take time, and it's going to happen in pieces, right? So th- there's perhaps going to be a partner that solves A to B, and then there's someone who does B to C, um, and then C to E. So what I'm trying to say is, it is, it is, it is, is it is challenging. I've I've worked at Pfizer. I've seen it firsthand. It's not necessarily because we we don't have the budget to innovate. It's not that there is no appetite to innovate. Uh, it is, it's not as easy as it sounds just because, you know, again, there again, you have to work with compliance rules be, depending on where you're transferring the money and where you're doing it. Um, the rules and regulations as well, you know, could be, um, could be a big hindrance and, and equally the key players that have market dominance, right? In, in doing some of the, some of the cross-border uh, payments. So, so that's really what makes it expensive. Not only does it make it expensive, but also the time that it takes at times, you know, where, where you have to transfer money, depending on where you live. So I think uh, there is definitely that appetite for fast, efficient, accessible payments, right? Um, especially in the growth, you know, with, with the growth in e-commerce, um, you know, you have seen and even global trade, for example, you've seen, um, you know, cross-border payments are on the rise for both businesses and consumers. But at the same time, I think, um, you know, there are enough, there is still enough work that we need to do, right? So in the face of this, let's assume, you know, in the face of this increased demand and and to remain competitive, Businesses are turning to their banks and fintech partners for solutions that make payments more instant and secure. In turn, the payment providers have turned to the, uh, turned to the late, latest digital innovations to transform the cross-border payments experience for you know treasurers and beneficiaries and customers. So what I'm trying to say, it's going to mean piece and parcel. It's not going to mean a whole. And I think you're just it, it's about you know trying to trying to take steps, solve for it, and taking those steps you know one 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 leg at a time, as opposed to solving for the whole thing. Um, and but i but i do see um, you know a pretty promising future you know for cross border payments and I, and i and it really comes down to driving that user experience um, having a customer mindset right so how do you really solve and improve the user experience so the embedding digital innovation into traditional clearing rails to improve um, to existing technologies one example right creating new solutions like real time payments and wallets in another so, so this is driving current digital trends, and will continue to set the agenda for future. Um, all of which will produce new technology and payment methods. I mean, you see J.P. Morgan doing that as well. I mean, they no, no longer call themselves a bank; they call themselves a technology company. So, I think you'll see an emergence of non-bank payment providers as well. API-enabled, um, you know, real-time FX rates, um, you know, plug-and-play, right? So, it'll integrate seamlessly into existing treasury infrastructure and infa- interfaces. You'd see more of that. Um, from a settlement side, you could see diversified settlement mechanisms. So as the industry is moving forward, you know you you will look beyond you know the clearing rail advancements and leveraging technologies like SWIFT GPI or virtual account management or API connectivity. So I think you you'll have to solve for each of these subsets to then you know eventually make it one whole. So I hope this answers to you because I know there is no um, there is no right question because I think being in the payments industry, being in the finance a uh, f- fintech industry. Um, I, I truly understand the complexities of the market and how uh, how it is in there, um but at the same time, I also understand as a customer how painful it is for me to be able to send money to just hypothetically to India and it doesn't it's not instant and I have to pay x dollars or I have or that money doesn't reach. so I see both sides of the coin. Um, so I have empathy or reverence or whatever that you mean to see, you know, how it's challenging. But, you know, I think we can get there in pieces is, what, is how I see it.
0: So there's hope after all. Yeah, there <laughs> is, yes, there is hope after all. So speaking of hope. Uh, we are getting to the end of 2022. I have no idea how this year flew by. I know I said that last year, but somehow this year just seems crazier. Um, so I am curious to to ask you anything that has transpired this year, perhaps that has surprised you, or uh, more interestingly, what do you look forward to for next year?
1: Yeah, sure. I think there were quite a few um, surprises, right? I think how quickly we were eager to bounce back post the pandemic it has been so refreshing and surprising to me because when I used to read things the last three years around how the world is going to be different how things will never be the same again and now we are we are seeing in-person meetings conferences events and people really are looking to get back together which is where it's incredible right everything because I think we live in a social economy and I think Although we were not, we were somewhat disconnected the last couple of years. You know, we're getting back to it. Equally, I think the awareness and the reverence around driving productivity, no matter where you live um, or where you, you know, where you live or you work, and that's incredible. Um, and um, and and what's really surprising, not necessarily just also in two two thousand twenty two, but even you know the year prior, is just the sheer um, increase in digital adoption. Right. Well, I was at Fiserv, Getting folks to get to online bill pay used to be an arduous process. Now it just happened, right? So, so that has been um, the most interesting and fascinating, um, uh, I would say, insight coming coming into or getting out of 2022. Um, of course, there were a few surprises, right? So cryptocurrencies, uh, you know, what happened to the value of cryptocurrencies took almost everyone. I, I'm sure, to you, you were surprised as well. I'm mean, literally 72% down on its value, right? We never expected that you mentioned i think rise in super apps we were not expecting that in 2022 we saw that again it's not consistent across but you definitely see uh, enough momentum there and then um and then web web3 became more relevant in fact i would say it became more mainstream right they're looking at only, you know it started decentralizing the internet and rebuilding it into a blockchain so so those things you know were they really caught me off uh, by surprise at things i never thought would catch fire so quickly did and the ones that we thought is going to be the thing, um, sort of didn't do that very well. Um, I think your question was, what are what am I looking forward um, to? I think th- the future is promising. I know there is, you know, we are going through ups and downs with the recession, especially in states, and you're looking at the pound. I mean, a lot of you know macroeconomic functions that we're juggling with the war and all of that, but the future does look bright, right? And in terms of, um, you know, some of the trends we spoke about, I think open banking is here to stay. Embedded finance will continue to accelerate. Um, some, some key trends I personally see is, I, I do think the metaverse, like my seven and eight year old know what a metaverse is. So that says it all, right? Um, so, I mean, it's happening and it is a time that we face the trend. And not, this is not, you know, it's for everyone, right? So you'll see um, some activity going on around that. Um, in, uh, in, in just our appetite towards uh, consumer, driving effective consumer, um delight i think the demand for self serve we see this at, fi- at finastra as well where you know the it, with the increase of digital uh, adoption um i think there is going to be a demand for self serve and for that i think ui will be key right so having the optimal ui um infrastructure and and which which then segues into ai right so artificial intelligence we've been hearing about this for the last six years right but i think now it, it's going to be um i would say you know, you'll see automatic chatbots. You know, they've been around, but they'll be more sophisticated. There's going to be a lot of work that's going to be put into that, so that you make the self serve journey that much more efficient. You've seen that in marketing, but you'll end up seeing that in finance as well. Uh, and this is dear to my heart. Um, uh, it's sustainable tech, right? So, I think customers, increasingly customers and investors are, uh, you know, are going to look at um, green credentials, and we'll see more of that, you know, coming up in. Um, um, in, 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 in 20, you know, in 2023. So I think that is something that, uh, um, I, am certainly looking, looking forward to,
0: especially. I like, I like that. Um, I like ending in a positive note. Um, I do agree with you a lot of things around self-service and, you know, AI, Let's just hope that we are using AI for good and help us strive towards a better future and more hopeful and greener, sustainable future instead of some of the divisive tactics that we've been seeing. But there is hope after all. So
1: this is... is One thing also to add, you know, as we were talking about uh, market uh, dominance and trying to level Mm -hmm. set, I also do think... That when you look at fintech companies and, and venture investors, I think they look—they are going to look for stable moves rather than the aggressive ones, right? So if high-risk, high-reward, short games drove that in 2021, I think 2023 and further is going to going to see more conservative, long game approaches, right? So um, I think I, I think there is going to be that element of. Uh, Uh, you know just just scoping it it very well before you know you invest and um, and
0: and I think sustainability will drive uh, a a whole lot of that of that so here's to a long game boring surprises (laughs) new year I I think I think I can use one of those years Um, thank you so much for joining us today on the show Shippa, and for the rest of you, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of One Vision. We'll talk to you all next week.